Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the World Affairs Podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon and today I'm talking to Nicole Siegel. She is the author of uh, Violence Work, um, State Power and the Limits of Police from Duke University Press, and it was published in 2018. Um, Nicole is a professor of history and American studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, Nicole, how did uh, you become interested in writing a book about the history of policing and what what is violence work? Mm. First of all, Jeff, thank you so much for having me on the podcast I'm really glad to be talking to you, um, especially in this moment when people are once again thinking really hard um, about what policing is and what its relationship to state violence might be and what other ways there are of shaping our social bodies and organizing ourselves. Um, So you asked me how I became interested in writing about police. Um, Well, I had been a... um, an anti-prison activist, an abolitionist for many years before I started writing about police. And that I came to um, in graduate school, actually, in the mid-90s, after having lived in California um, during the riots after the beating of Rodney King. That was my first introduction to disproportionate police violence against African Americans. And um, it is an experience that I took with me to graduate school. Um, in New York City. Um, And I I remember very clearly a series of lectures organized by the law school where Angela Davis was one of the speakers. And it was the first time I'd ever heard the term prison industrial industrial complex. Um, That must have been 94, 95. And it struck me very hard and it helped me to understand things that I had been doing in my activist life um, around migration. I was an immigrants' rights advocate in that moment. Um, and it helped me to understand the relationship between migration, incarceration, um, the military, um, economic needs of, uh, of the capitalist democracy of the United States. Um, and so that was the moment where I began thinking and being um, active around questions of mass incarceration. And I, um, it came of age in the moment when people began to call themselves abolitionists and we began to organize, organized with critical resistance for many years. And then when I finished the um, the work I had been doing in graduate school um, that had been prompted by my interests in migration and, the, and race in the Americas, which became a book called Uneven Encounters about making race a nation in Brazil and the United States, I knew I wanted to write about the thing that I'd been spending all my activists' energies on, the prison industrial complex. Um, and But I wanted to write about it in terms of um, some of the transnational currents that affected local and, in particular, U.S. conditions. And, and as I began thinking about it, I realized that the thing that I most wanted to write about was policing, because policing was the thing that seemed to me most clearly to travel and to um, be incorporating some of the global currents of U.S. colonialism and of the Cold War era in particular, the moment when mass incarceration was shaped and the moment in which the kinds of policing tactics that we see implemented in U.S. cities 
all over the country right now were developed. <clears throat> Sorry. So yeah, mm -hmm, go ahead. Yeah. So um, I come at this uh, uh, in a way from the opposite and the receiving end of a lot of this U.S. Um, mm -hmm. aid to foreign country policing, I study um, transitions to democracy and attempts to consolidate mm -hmm. democracy in in, in so-called developing countries. And mm -hmm. um, although this liter the literature in my field, comparative politics, focuses a lot on um, how U.S. aid shaped military involvement in politics in a lot of these countries. Um, the um, the aid to policing and the role of police in day to day life and and the political function that police serve in these societies uh, is really invisible and so that's part of the a big part of the reason why I I was drawn to uh, your book uh, because violence work on on a sort of day to day level is uh, almost rendered invisible because of some of these ideological distinctions that it that is yeah and I and I think you know it isn't that um, the powers that be are trying to hide the involvement of police in um, in, in U.S. overseas interventions it's just that they get subsumed into the broader framework of military action. They get assumed to be military, even when people are quite open that they're sending over police officers or military police or, uh, you know, some other force that might understand itself in a domestic context as policing. Um, it, it just gets sort of interpolated, interpreted into this, what, what we assume to be going on when U.S. is involved in foreign interventions, which is always necessarily military. Right. Um, so, so you called the, the book um, violence work because this violence work denotes the range of things that police do that other entities like uh, social workers, counselors, friends and family cannot do. Um, how does violence work get to the heart of what the state really is? Mm -hmm. Well, let me just start by going by going backwards a little bit and talking about how violence work gets to the heart of what policing does right. before we get to the state, if you don't mind. Because sure. the book is really interested in... Um, highlighting and trying to take apart some of the myths that underlie the functioning of the police. And the first one is the most important one really is this notion that police fight crime. You know, that is the base level assumption. If you ask a, um, you know, a, a regular educated citizen on the street, what do police do? Well, they fight crime. Sometimes people might say they keep order, they support law and order. You know, that's a much more expansive kind of framing. But the link between policing and crime is so tight. And that's the one that I think really needs to be undone. And um, uh, a cluster of fantastic critical criminologists has um, worried this knot from the angle of crime itself talking about what crime is and what we assume it to be, what we allow it to be, what kinds of social harm don't get defined as crime. Uh, so I wanted to come at it from this other angle of whether police actually um, are intended to fight crime. And what you discover when you think about this, even just a little bit shallowly, is that it's ridiculous to think that police are primarily involved in crime. First of all, there have been police for um, centuries. There's been a notion of the police power for centuries. Um, there haven't been uniformed public police departments, forces for centuries that started a little bit later, say in the 19th century. But there's been a notion of the police power for much longer. And there's only been an understanding of the relationship between police and crime for about, um, well, let's say less than 200 years. So the link between police and crime comes late. And um, what police actually do in their day-to-day -day is so rarely involved with crime that it is, um, you know, it, it's sort of ridiculous So people who study the content of police labor, you know, what police actually do on a day-to-day -day basis, say that police uh, work on crime-related issues less than a tenth of their time or... Um, you know, that they're actually fighting crime or pursuing criminals 1% um, of their time or never, you know, depending on how they define what police crime work is, they find just very, very small percentages of police time actually spent on it. 
So well, I start from the recognition that this is a myth that needs to be undone. And I want to think instead about what it is that police actually do. And so I rely here heavily on Egon Bittner. He's a scholar of the police from the 70s and his understanding of um, the ways that police use violence, which is um, that police often don't need to use violence because they represent the ability to inflict state violence. They are the organ of the state that is authorized to inflict this famous Weberian definition of the state, the monopoly on legitimate violence. They are the people who get to express that abstraction. Um, and so whether or not they actually, you know, shoot somebody or hit somebody, the police is, the police power comes from the recognition that they have the right, that they do in fact have the ability to bring violence into the real world of, of a human body. So that is the, that's the, um, that's the reason I want to call their work violence work is that it makes very clear the exact relationship, not a one-to-one relationship because of the question of scale, right? Police are human scale. The state is this large abstraction, but this direct relationship between state violence and police as the channel of that violence into the real world into real time into real space. Yeah, and I think that that's um, a really uh, interesting way of focusing our our thinking about policing um, because, as you, uh, I, I really found it um, helpful to think through. Well, why do we consider things that are crime? Like, why do we? Uh, what delimits the boundaries of the concept of crime? Why are things like? you know, day-to-day shoplifting considered crime, but, you know, industrial pollution is not. Um, And I think that um, a big problem that a lot of people have with the idea of defunding the police or abolishing the police is that they think of police work as being so firmly intertwined with this idea of fighting crime that they think mm-hmm. that without this potential use of force or actual use of force, uh, society would go to hell and we would all be living in a Hobbesian world of all against all, right? right. Um, um, but uh, you uh, you helpfully um, try to get away from that idea by pointing out that um, – we shouldn't naturalize the concept of crime. And even if we do accept the definition of crime as it exists now, that's not really what police do with a lot of their time. Um, Absolutely. Um, So you, you talk in the book about uh, three myths that serve to legitimize policing and differentiate, supposedly differentiate policing from other exercises of state violence that um, would be problematic in a liberal Mm -hmm. democratic state um, or uh, um, exercises of violence by non-state actors, for example. And, um, the first of these is the uh, civilian-military distinction, um, and uh, um, we hear this in uh, former Defense Secretary James Mattis's recent uh, statement, uh, criticizing the idea of use, calling in the military to put down protests and so-called riots in in, in cities. Uh, that the threat that Trump and Tom Cotton have made recently. Um, when he says that um, uh, we must reject any thinking of our cities as battle space, that our uniformed military is called upon to dominate, and that militarizing our response sets up a conflict, a false conflict, between military and civilian society. And he went on to add that keeping public order rests with civilian state and local leaders who best understand their commitments and are answerable to them. But yeah, in reality, the other, um, one of the other myths as well, state and local leaders, you know, insist right. that the police are the, uh, that they're operating in a kind of local frame on a very small scale. That's mm-hmm. another critical one. 
Right. And that this small scale in some way entails greater accountability to citizens than these larger scales, which is also, you know, historically problematic in the right. U.S. Yeah, I think um, it's also a question of sort of pretending that the police are, um, you know, your your lovely benign neighbors. Um, the question of scale is about reducing them to a size that feels human and refusing to recognize their core relationship to the larger abstractions of state and market. Right. It's trying to invoke this quaint idea of, you know, the policeman that you see walking down your street every day and you say hi to and, you know, you're you're friendly with and he's there to protect you against whatever chaos may may uh, be in store for you. Um, But in reality, historically, the police and the military have been intertwined from the beginning. Um, How has the U.S.'s history of colonialism and overseas expansion shaped uh, the development of policing uh, in the United States? Okay, yeah. Um, Let me just start by saying that uh, when you're asking me about the myths that I write about in violence work, the myth of police being civilian, the myth of their being public, the myth of their being local. Um, you're you're asking me to think about these borders that help mm-hmm. constrain, contain the idea of police. Um, and the metaphor of border crossing is really useful, not only when you're thinking about actual territorial border crossing, but categorical border crossing. So... Um, the, the categories of civilian and military have this really critical border, which has to be maintained in order for police to sustain their legitimacy in a democracy. And, you know, what you see what Mattis doing in the, um, in the statement that you just quoted is defending the border between civilian and military, because that is what, um, he thinks will sustain their, their legitimacy. So he sees um, Trump's actions as threatening the legitimacy of this democratic institution, that is the institutions that allow our type of democracy to distribute state violence by distinguishing between some violence, which is military, and other violence, which ought to be civilian. Um, so you asked me about the history of U.S. expansion and of colonialism um, and how that muddies up the borders between civilian and military um, that's a, that's a really key question. You know, the U.S. first, obviously, um, became a nation through its genocidal containment of the people who were here when European powers decided to set up shop on American shores. And then by... Um, and then through a series of... Um, wars with other European powers and then with other nations in the Americas later in the, um, in the 19th and in the 20th centuries. And those actions of genocide against Native Americans and of colonial containments in the Americas, those have been police actions as much as uh, they have been military actions. There has been truck back and forth between military and police forces at every moment. In fact, um, some historians understand the removal and genocide of Native Americans as as much of a police action as a military action. Um, and uh, colonial situations are the places in which uh, lots of the policing tactics of the present were developed. And in fact, the modern police force, as developed by the British policeman Sir Robert Peel, who is the founder of the Bobbies, those were developed when he was in, um, in authority in Ireland as part of the British occupation of Ireland, and they were redeveloped in India. They are, those, those forces, the Bobbies, are a product of experimentation in containing colonized populations. We also can't ignore the role of police in maintaining slavery. Police were um, some of the first... Uh, forces that were in charge of collecting and returning escaped enslaved people. Um, And police forces that developed in the South to try to contain and police escaped enslaved people 
were some of the first to take the modern form of police, to be armed as police forces. They developed from the constabulary uh, forces and the colonial militias that were in operation at the time. So slavery, Native American genocide, and U.S. colonialism in the Americas are the roots of modern U.S. policing, and they must be understood as such if we are to understand what it is that the police are actually supposed to do and do. Right. And um, we think of uh, a lot of Americans think of counterinsurgency as something that the U.S. and other colonial powers do overseas uh, mm-hmm. to try to bring peace and order to uh, uh, societies like Afghanistan and Iraq that are fractured and fragmented. Um, but uh, how? Uh, what are some of the examples of border crossing? And here, I think that um, the Office of Public Service, uh, which the Office of or Public, Public Safety, Service. right, and that you that you talk so much about in your book is is an example of this border crossing, yeah. where the practice of counterinsurgency. Uh, the practitioners um, went back and forth between these overseas places and assisting places like Thailand and Turkey, countries that I'm very familiar with in in, in uh, developing their own counterinsurgency capabilities and then bringing the, the lessons learned from overseas back to the U.S. and um, fighting counterinsurgencies in our urban areas. Uh, so could you talk a little bit more about the linkage between counterinsurgency overseas and counterinsurgency uh, within the U.S. and thinking of, of, of you know, U.S. citizens, Black U.S. citizens as objects of counterinsurgency? Sure, yeah. Yeah, well, when you say counterinsurgency, you're bringing us into the 20th century and especially into the Cold War. Um, it's... It's a anti-guerrilla uh, fighting tactic or sort of military framework that was developed specifically to counter um, guerrillas, uh, people who don't have state power, who have to be disproportionate and um, secretive in the ways that they fight state power. So counterinsurgency involves, uh, even though it's military tactic, it involves some really key policing type strategies such as surveillance. Uh, and so it's maybe no wonder that the police were so intimately involved in the development of counterinsurgency. And then that counterinsurgency began to seem relevant to, um, to U.S. police back in the U.S. in the beginning in the 1960s when U.S. cities began to feel to um, city officials and police authorities like the battlegrounds they were seeing overseas, specifically at that point in Vietnam. So if you, if you look at the news and discussions of U.S. urban unrest in the 1960s, you see all kinds of people comparing it to Vietnam and comparing counterinsurgency in Vietnam to the ways that police were encountering resistance here in the U.S. It began to be a kind of understanding of um, the possibility of resistance, of socialism or communism, of anti-capitalist sentiment, of resistance to white supremacy, colonialism abroad, um, anti-blackness in the U.S. Uh, and you see in particular um, this particular this body of police and other kinds of violence workers who were organized into an organization called the Office of Public Safety, which was developed in uh, the early 1960s to help militaries fight insurgency abroad. And it was, um, it was really a, a minor office in, in quantitative terms, but it does have a disproportionate illustrative power to help us understand how the U.S. government was understanding the relationship between the U.S. and its um, its engagements abroad. So, um, let's see. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, it, the Office of Public Safety and the um, career paths that its former employees have had uh, since the the OPS was disbanded yeah. in 1974 uh, illustrate that. 
um, people, elites uh, in conservative think tanks and in city halls and in police departments have been thinking of our cities as a battle space that needs to be dominated for some time now, right? Uh, Well, we should say what the Office of Public Safety was and what it did so folks can follow. Um, So it was this, it was an agency that took um, police abroad to to many different countries to help train other nations' police. So it was an agent of U.S. police assistance, which is perhaps an odd term. We're willing to think about military assistance, but more rarely do we think of police assistance. Um, That's what it did for 12 years officially, although it had its roots in other uh, other organizations um, operated through the Department of Defense for several decades before that. But it was made official in 1962, and it existed until 1974 when a series of controversies brought Congress to close its doors and, in fact, to prohibit police assistance across the board because of fears that these police advisors in the Office of Public Safety were teaching torture, were highly political, right? We're practicing political policing, which itself is supposed to be an oxymoron, not supposed to, police are not supposed to be political. Um, And that it was um, in cahoots with the CIA, that it was a front for the CIA, and that it was involved in setting up um, torturous prisons, particularly in Vietnam, uh, in South Vietnam. So there were a series of controversies that made Congress bring it to an end, helped in part by um, some pop culture, in particular uh, a film by um, a Greek filmmaker that uh, showed some of its workings, and uh, the event covered in some of those, some in some of that cultural material, which was the kidnapping of an office of public safety officer um, by Tupac Amaru guerrillas in Uruguay, a guy named Dan Mitrioni, um, whose kidnapping then became very, became notorious and brought lots of attention to, and he was killed um, by his kidnappers, um, brought lots of attention to the question of whether the Office of Public Safety was teaching torture to its police students in Latin America and elsewhere. Right. Um, And so the Office of Public Safety not only um, uh, um, renders problematic the civil military distinction, but it's also uh, renders problematic the um, local versus national versus international distinction, right? It does. It does. Yeah. I keep feeling like you're getting ahead of me, though, and I'm, I'm happy okay, to sorry. go with you. But you've asked me a question right. that I have not yet answered, which is about mm-hmm. how, um, you know, why the Office of Public Safety shows us what it shows us, which is because right, right. when it ended in 1974, it ended so sharply. And the um, employees of this organization were furious uh, and they mm-hmm. didn't want to um, stop what they were doing. They believed deeply in the mission of their work. And so um, they organized a newsletter, which helped them keep in touch with each other. They helped each other get new jobs. They followed each other. They praised each other's movements. And it allowed me as a researcher to track what they were doing and to follow the ways that the jobs that they took on after after their organization was terminated and they were fired, um, to track the jobs that they were doing and how those jobs kind of ran roughshod over these borders of civilian versus military, national versus international, or local versus international, and public versus private. So what what I saw then was that many, many Office of Public Safety employees were moving over the border of civilian military into military work. They were moving over the border of public-private into private sector work, and they continued moving around levels of scale from local to national to global and territorial borders, right? Leaving the U.S., coming back to it, um, traveling as part of their work uh, as they continued their professional lives. Um, Lots and lots of them returned to the U.S. and became police. And some of them were were, were involved in policing the urban areas that became some of the targets of counterinsurgency. They brought back specific tactics. They brought back mentalities, uh, you know, frameworks for thinking about 
urban unrest in the U.S. that had been shaped in um, Cold War counterinsurgency contexts abroad. Um, and they also went very heavily and often into overseas work for private companies um, and domestic work for private companies in the private security industry, which was ballooning at the time. I think a lot of people don't understand how enormous the private security industry is today and how deeply the sort of shadow world of policing is connected to official public policing. We think of cops moonlighting or something as maybe some romantic exceptional state, but the ways that police can cross these borders can work at the same time or sequentially for public and private bodies is really quite striking because the kinds of work that they're doing is not uh, are not all that different from each other, whether they work for an urban police department or a rural police department, but regardless of public police department, or whether they work for a private company doing industrial security or their security guards for any kind of venue, um, the work that they end up doing is just very similar. Uh, and in all cases, they are violence workers authorized to use the violence of the state, even when they're working for a private employer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. And I would like to dig into this um, public-private distinction um, a lot more and how... Uh, um, these private, this private security industry should make us reconsider or, or think differently about the relationship between states and markets than we do now. Um, in capitalist democracies, there's supposed to be a distinction between the state, which serves the public yeah. good or the will of the people, and the market, which is a realm of private individuals engaging in contracts for mutually beneficial exchange. Mm -hmm. um, police as agents of the state are not supposed to serve any particular private or class interests. Right. Um, and yet we see so many examples, for example, in your chapter where you trace these Office of, of Public Safety um, um, employees as they enter into uh, employment for uh, the private security firm Wackenhut to help defend the uh, Alaska oil pipeline that was constructed right. in the 70s and 80s. Um, we see these examples where um, uh, the police are are. Uh, defending whether the same people crossing this boundary between public policing and, and private security, they're still doing the same work of, of defending uh, the infrastructure of capitalism. Um, yeah. How do you think this, uh, uh, these, this private security industry and the relationship between even public police and, and private industry, how do you think this unsettles this uh, uh, state market distinction that we have? Mm. I think it's crucial. You know, I think, um, and, and yes, I write about the Alaskan oil pipeline and the way that lots of former Office of Public Safety employees went to work for pipeline security, which was awarded as a contract to a private security company. Uh, and that, I think that's a perfect example of government market collaboration is in the awarding of contracts, which is an extremely normal way to, to do business, to get security for some grand um, undertaking like the Alaska oil pipeline. Um, the ways that it speaks to the indistinction between the state and the market, um, so... There's this notion in, I guess, liberalism that the state and the market are distinct and that the market is self-regulating in certain ways. And that notion finds its extreme expression in neoliberalism, this political philosophy originating or that began to be applied, let's say, in the 1970s and which has had some um, some 
great moments of subscription in the last 50 years, which is the notion that the state should get entirely out of the market. The market can be entirely self-regulating. The state should get its hands off. You see this in Trump's adherence to, um, to, 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 to up the opposition to regulation. Um, and that's just this magnificent fiction that the state and the market could ever be distinct. Because in fact, even as regulations of some sorts are lifted, the state is facilitating the operation of the market in much more fundamental ways and has done so since the emergence of uh, of mercantile capitalism in, you know, in the last 500 years, capitalism could not exist without the state form. Um, maybe not the state form as we know it. Maybe there are other state forms that could sustain capitalism. Um, but capitalism and the state form, the nation state in particular, are deeply um, interconnected in in North Atlantic history and now in world history. Uh, Karl Polanyi wrote about this and the great transformation about the ways in which state intervention into the market was necessary or the market would have exhausted itself in certain frenzies that it, it leads itself to. You cannot have, um, uh, uh, the, let's see, Jeff, I don't know how to continue to explain this without getting too deep into Polanyi, and I don't think that's someplace that your listeners <laughs> well, want well, to go. I also, Shall I come I, back to the Office of Public Safety in particular? Well, I, um, I, I do kind of want to uh, uh-huh. get into this because I do see this as a very common um, ideological fiction of the idea that yeah. you can have a market independent of the state. But yeah. um, when one way that I think about how Polanyi is important here is in uh-huh. the idea of fictitious commodities, because okay. the state violence is important for turning land, in the case of the Alaska oil pipeline, into a commodity that can be bought right. and sold and, and, and exploited. And people who are using the land in other ways. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, 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 uh, finding the quality of private property and ensuring right. that 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 just absolute spinal cord of capitalism is respected. Right. The idea of a self-regulating market um, presupposes all of these political processes that need to, to happen yeah. in order for land and labor time to be That's fungible. Right. And the, the way regulation is it requires a state intervention in order to force people into it. The wage relation is uncomfortable. It's violent right. and it requires state action to keep people from, you know, going and building sustainable communities like quilombos or communes. Uh, you know, you need mm-hmm. to, you need to force people to stay within land borders. Mm-hmm. You need to force them right. to operate, uh, you know, your factories. You need to force people to stay within certain very circumscribed limits in order to keep them in a wage relation to force them to work for wages. So that's right. where state violence is absolutely critical to the maintenance of any kind of capitalist system. Right, exactly. And I also think about um, how these this private security industry uh, and and public police as well have played such an important role historically in putting down labor demonstrations and um, stopping any kind of um, and that's um, even interference in the normal to be in a wage relation. Those yeah, they just want to directly. they just want to have a little more yeah. say in, in yeah. how their workplace is organized. And even that yeah. is something where um, were it to get out of hand, it would interfere with the self-regulating properties of the market. And so the right. state needs the, either the state or these um, private agencies, uh, uh, you know, the famous historical example um, being, oh gosh, the name of that firm is, is the Pinkertons, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, of, of, of an organization whose job is to put down any kind of labor organization. Um, and so, uh, we see this, um, um, we see OPS workers, uh, going into these sorts of firms. Uh, and you, we also see it in, uh, your chapter on Aramco in Saudi Arabia, where, um, some of these OPS employees were involved in, um, uh, putting down strikes in, in, in Jerom in, in Sa- Eastern Saudi Arabia. Could you talk a little bit more about that example? 
Sure. Um, in in Alaska, what off, the Office of Public Safety um, folks who were working for either private security or public police or the criminal justice system there were doing is they were helping to build this cornerstone of the global oil economy. Um, Timothy Mitchell helped me understand the structure of that and how critical important how critically important it has been to the shape of labor and to capitalism in the last sixty years. Um, and right. then carbon democracy was carbon such democracy, a, a yeah. fantastic book. It's really, yeah. really essential. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and while we're shouting out to key books, just to, to mm-hmm. come back to this question of um, the state and the market, it, I think. Um, you know, James Scott on the ways that people have tried to run away from state control and what state right. control means in terms of tithing and um, requirements to stay in certain kind of labor relations. Graber on debt and Ruthie Gilmore on the ways that um, in California in particular, um, the state was managing certain kinds of surplus, like surplus populations and surplus land and labor, uh, how the prison industrial complex or the prison system was essential to that kind of management in addition to Polanyi. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, uh, um, moving along from thinking about that corner of the global oil economy over to Saudi Arabia, lots and lots of office of public safety officials went to work in Saudi Arabia. And, and, in part, that was because the Office of Public Safety had already had such a deep engagement in Saudi Arabia. And it was one of the places where countries were not actually getting this aid, quote unquote, for free. They were paying for it, which sort of boggles the mind. Why is it aid if they were paying for it? But they had been working very closely with certain branches of the Saudi Arabian government for all of the life of the Office of Public Safety and prior and when the Office of Public Safety folded, the program in Saudi Arabia was one of the ones that the agency's champions thought they might have an opportunity to extend. And in the end, they, they didn't, but they were able to bid for and um, people who had worked for OPS uh, to bid for and win a contract to um, help with industrial security for the oil industry in, in Saudi Arabia. And then what you see, what I, what I track as I follow Office of Public Safety employees as they move into all kinds of different jobs in the oil economy in Saudi Arabia are these unbelievably hybrid bodies that have, you know, corporate heads and state torsos and corporate legs and state toes and then just impossible mixtures of civilian and military, of public and private, of people working at all levels of scale, of people from everywhere with all kinds of training. That's why I think this Deleuzian concept of assemblage is useful, although I would say I sort of take its name in vain because I'm not quite so theoretically precise, but it's an incoherent um, collection of objects. It, It helps us remember that these different parts of the system don't necessarily speak to each other. They don't have the same ideas about what they're doing. They um, try to maintain in their brains uh, these distinctions that they're actually just stomping all over in practice. Um, And it really gives the lie to any kind of coherence of this notion of the state in distinction from the market, notion of the market in distinction from the state. So I, I use this term that um, you mentioned before, the state market with a hyphen, because when we think about the two of them together, I think it allows us to understand what's going on a lot better. It allows us to see the ways in which, you know, the state also is heavily reliant on the notion that it's distinct from the market, because that's what grants the state a kind of legitimacy, you know. We're not corrupt politicians. We're not working for profit. We're just simply governing and doing what's in the interests of our constituents. We're representing people, you know, all of these political concepts that allow us to ignore the ways in which the state and the market are functioning together to to further the conditions that that capitalism needs, to further the conditions that capital needs. in order to to sustain its operations. 
Right. And uh, throughout this discussion, another book that I, th- that I think about a lot is uh, Deborah Cohen's um, The Deadly Life of Logistics. It's all about mm. particularly looking at the oil industry, among, uh, but also looking at um, shipping, all the ways in which um, mm. uh, both state violence workers and um, private uh, security companies are involved at uh, all levels of the process of, of mm-hmm. right. uh, extracting yeah. oil, uh, c- transporting it, bringing it to market, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, and, um, uh, looking at all the ways in which, uh, the functioning of a market in natural resources, uh, is dependent in so many ways on the exercise of state power. That's right. Um, yeah. And, and before we move away from talking about books and the circulation of police in urban areas, I wanted to mention before um, Stuart Schrader's amazing Badges Without Borders. That is really the book. It's much better than violence work on the ways that police brought um, the priorities and the tactics of counterinsurgencies back, uh, of counterinsurgency as a practice back to U.S. cities. Um, that's, a, that's a really amazing book about the ways that policing in the U.S. has been influenced by Cold War considerations highly recommend uh, yeah i love uh, uh i've basically read uh his book and your book sequentially and mm-hmm. um uh i love how you guys can both look at the office of public safety yeah. and write these very different books that are complementary to each other in a lot of ways um uh yep. and i think that that's really uh fascinating um we had to we had to stop talking at a certain point so that the book didn't become <laughs> more like each other we were afraid right. that we were um you know pulling each other towards each other's interests so we spent a period after being very in very close contact for a while we spent a period of trying not to talk about all this stuff so that we could create different objects and then of course we did because we, that always happens but <laughs> it was a concern right. for both of us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, so I want to pivot a little bit now also to talking about um, how race fits into uh, the state market and, and oh, yeah. capitalism. Um, uh, Thank you. Sometimes why is I take that both... so deeply for granted that I forget that, right. We, um, right. that we're not always Absolutely. already talking about race because we are. Right. You have to go there. Sure. Go ahead. Certainly. Let's formulate your question. So, so yeah. Why is race both, uh, as you write, a necessary engine and a product of capitalism? And how do police activities produce race? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so racism is an engine and a product um, of, what am I saying? Capitalism, state violence, both, which is a question. How right. should we approach? Right. <laughs> All of the uh, capitalism, all of the above, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, the 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 formulation of racial difference in the in a moment of European expansion, of kind of enlightenment um, thinking, and um, of European extan- expansion into um, the Americas, Africa, and Asia, uh, is a critical moment in the formation of the. Um, of the ideas of liberal governance that would go on to be critical to uh, to the formation of the notion of the modern state. So this notion, for example, that uh, the, of the citizen is itself a racialized concept. The notion of the sovereign is a racialized concept. Uh, nationalisms are profoundly racist in the ways in which they envision um, the the boundaries of inclusion and their territorial and um, imagined boundaries. So, uh, the fact that Europe was expanding, um, and, uh, using colonialism and genocide as tools for statecraft in the period of the development of the modern state can't be overlooked. Racism is critical to the formation of contemporary nation states because it happens in this, uh, through this process of European expansion and establishment. Um, and the labor systems of, you know, of colonialism, of say, uh, of tithing, of containment of, in both, um, Spanish Lusophone and Hispanophone America, as well as Anglophone and Francophone America, those are all critical, um, kinds of practices. Then of course you have the, the triangular trade, the 
use of enslaved labor to replace the laborers that disease and the ability to escape um, was making impossible through colonized bodies in the Americas. And so, uh, you know, without slavery, there would not be uh, the modern nation of the United States and the way that we know it, nor would there be nation states in, in other parts of um, the European colonial empire in the Americas and outside it. So racism is a profound historical precedent. Um, even, even if the shape of modern racism was not yet defined, the distinctions that are being made between enlightenment subjects and others, affectable others, as Denise Ferreira da Silva would say, in her book, The Global Idea of Race, uh, Towards a Global Idea of Race, um, that distinction was crucial to the setting up of these systems, both political and ideological. And then, of course, capitalism generates race as a population distinction, as a way to um, sustain the kinds of categories it requires in order to... Um, in order for capital to accumulate, in order for people to be dispossessed of the resources that they need to remain outside of capitalist systems. Um, right. And so, for example, the doctrine of discovery that was uh, used as um, basically the legal reasoning behind dispossession of Native Americans was premised on this idea that uh, indigenous peoples are incapable of uh, of achieving civilization, quote unquote, on their own, and that um, because they weren't putting their land to good use, being the uncivilized heathens that they are, that justified um, the their expulsion from the land, their loss of use of use rights over the land, um, and uh, the extraction of resources therefrom, the resettlement of Europeans onto their land because they would bring you know this racial yeah. racialized concept of civilization to those territories yeah. and and we see that uh that kind of reasoning today in in extractive resource economies like right. the yeah. construction of the alaska pipeline and more recently the construction yeah. of the pipeline through um uh dakotas. through the dakotas exactly yeah. that's right yeah yes this notion of progress of um of what constitutes um you know, an organized society or productive society, those things extend the legacies of that, uh, of that much earlier era. Yeah. In terms of how, um, how policing produces race and racism, I think one of the most important ways is spatially, right, by policing certain neighborhoods, by hyper-policing certain neighborhoods, by making sure that people aren't out of place, whether it's, you know, Trayvon Martin or Ahmad Arbery, somebody who is, seems to be out of place and is, um, is uh, whose death is then state-sanctioned, even though it is delivered by a private agent. Um, th those sorts of inflictions of violence, I think we have to understand also because they are state sanctioned because especially right now, but not only right now, even when Trump is not in office or someone like Trump is not in office, uh, the ways that we organize the distribution of guns, for example, and the ways in which there has been and probably will continue to be a lack of um, any kind of accountability for people who inflict racist violence on those who move out of the places where black and brown bodies are supposed to be confined. Um, but policing, I mean, it's impossible not to think about the ways that um, police exercise immediate murderous violence on black and brown bodies right now. Uh, but that's, I think, not the most important way that policing produces race and feeds racism, is an engine of racism. I think it's it's much more about uh, the ways in which policing is critical to the maintenance of larger systems that are racist, including spatial systems, also occupational systems, systems of um, land use and resource use, systems of pollution, and therefore health and health care, you know, where there are grocery stores, where there is, um, where, where there is smog and asthma and 
uh, respiratory disease, you know, and of course, um, then how crime is understood, how the acts of survival that people are forced to commit because they are confined to poverty, prevented from getting education, prevented from uh, the opportunities, prevented just from earning the same amount as um, whiter people or white people. Uh, those are those are some of the critical ways in which police are involved in really deep and profound productions of racialized hierarchies, racialized inequalities. I think it's useful to focus on the more dramatic instances of police violence because it helps us see how um, it helps us focus rage on policing and think about a world without police. But when we do that, I think it's it's unbelievably important to remember the police's expression of this larger question of state violence, the police's relationship to these larger concepts of the state market, so that we don't indulge in shallow reforms which don't move us away from the broader and underlying racisms, which are, which are just as violent, if not as dramatic, as police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and other people whose names were chanting on the daily. Right. Um, and, and, uh, we've seen, um, efforts or gestures towards police reform, like body cameras that it's so easy for, um, politicians at all skills in American politics to, to say, Oh, this is going to solve police violence. Yeah. But, uh, we've seen these introduced waves of police reforms introduced, uh, that still have not stopped police from killing black people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we see this, uh, with this one little technological innovation. We say, Oh, there's the solution. But, the things that folks are calling for, like police accountability or civilian review boards or the greater visibility or prosecution, none of those things are new. They've all been demanded by people protesting police brutality and police racism for decades. And they don't go to the heart of the problem. They allow police to remain this cornerstone of our notion of how our political and social lives should be run. They allow for the permanence of you know, neighborhood segregation, educational segregation, healthcare segregation, all of these ways in which black and brown lives are impoverished, immiserated, shortened. Uh, you know, just having a police force that didn't kill black people would do nothing against those broader, um, against those broader uh, panoramas. And they might even grow the prison system because if we're not interrupting the police's relationship to the criminal justice system, we're still allowing police to be the funnel that takes black and brown bodies and puts them in prisons and other situations of confinement. The, the right. thing that and I'm most worried about right now, if I can take a little tangent away from violence, sure. work, um, and maybe you can tell that I have not been thinking about violence work, as the book <laughs> that is much at all recently. Sure. I've been thinking much more about what's going on in the streets. You know, the thing that I'm most worried about right now is that um, there is a broad common sense building against police violence, and it it dovetails with the broader common sense building against mass incarceration. You know, where you have seen even very mainstream politicians take a stand against mass incarceration and even call it mass incarceration, which is a term of critique, which they have embraced. And um, when you have that that very broad um, mainstreaming of a radical political message, I fear that it will be channeled into a kind, the kind of reform that will disrupt absolutely nothing. And in particular, right now, I think we should be really worried about the forms of surveillance, uh, of which body cameras are one. Body cameras are feeding our sense, our, our, the kind of reason that a lot of people are subscribing to right now that uh, visibility is all, that monitoring is everything. And this plague of electronic monitoring that we are inflicting on people as punishment and as probation and parole, uh, you know, post-punishment monitoring systems is terrifying to me because I think it's, it's one of the outlets that I suspect energy for, for reform will take is that, you know, okay, so let's put some electronic monitors on nasty police, on people with complaints of brutality against them, the way we've been putting monitors now 
on people who are coming out of prison or jail or people who um, are sentenced to monitoring as a sentence, you know, recognizing there that it's punishment. Whereas when it's post sentence, we say it's not punishment. It's just, um, it's just a condition of their release. They have a conditional release and monitoring is one of those conditions. Uh, And it's just, toxic in the extreme because I don't think we realize that we're building prisons out of filaments of the cloud. We're building right. electronic, we're building digital prisons. Um, and they are, they, they have the potential to be as confining, as immiserating, as impoverishing and as sickening as brick and mortar prisons. I could go right. on about that a lot, but Absolutely. there's other no, people who are thinking that's a, about that. That's right a fantastic now. point. And um, when we think about uh, the involvement of people like the Koch brothers who are, who are starting to get into um, criminal justice reform, because they're not coming at it from a racial justice perspective. They're coming at it from a, well, prisons are expensive. Let's find cheaper ways to monitor this underclass rather than exactly. uh, thinking about um rather than trying to address the deeper political economy that uh, renders uh, black and brown people uh, as a surplus population that's not invested in by any of our uh, institutions that's uh, spatially segregated, as you pointed out, and as, and prevented from having access to uh, opportunities that so many people take for granted. I don't think people understand that electronic monitoring is not just, like carrying your phone in your pocket, you know, the cost and the consequences and the consequences of the costs of electronic monitoring are sky high. The consequences, first of all, judges who assign people electronic monitors sometimes give them greater punishments, longer sentences, although suspended, than they would if they didn't assign the electronic monitoring. And these things are extremely easy to mess up. And so it's very easy to violate the conditions of um, of a um, of a probation or parole with electronic monitoring because they lose signal, they lose charge, they have malfunctions very frequently, and people are always blamed for the malfunctions of their devices. And the costs are unbelievable. They are that people have a setup fee of like one to two hundred, two hundred and fifty dollars, and they have a daily fee of ten to fourteen dollars. It varies widely. It varies by county by state, by company, depending on what company is providing the quote unquote service. And if you cannot pay, then you are once again in a situation of violating the terms of, um, of your conditions. And, um, it is these kinds of conditions are inflicted on people who don't fully understand what they're signing up for, or if they do, um, are so desperate to be out of the brick and mortar prison, maybe because they want to you know, be involved in raising their children or have an opportunity to support, um, you know, their families or just continue their education and the building of their work lives and careers that they accept them or they don't read the fine print. And people find themselves in these unbelievable situations where it, it works out worse for them. They owe thousands and thousands of dollars and they are they find themselves again facing long prison sentences this time for violating the terms of electronic monitoring so we can't just think to ourselves well it's you know like wearing a fitbit it's absolutely not um and you know if you try to take one off or if one malfunctions and you're blamed for it you can be convicted of an attempt to escape which is itself a felony so if you have a misdemeanor and you get an electronic monitor and then something happens to it and you're convicted of um an attempt to escape, all of a sudden you're a felon. So there are many ways in which this current um, regime and its prospects is terrifying to me. And I hope that people will not allow themselves to be lulled by the euphemism of electronic monitoring. Now, one thing I am really excited about are these calls to defund the police. That is something that we haven't seen. And you know, the fact that the Minneapolis City Council has decided to endorse this policy, that's unusual. And that's exciting. To disarm, to defund, to diminish the police overall, those are those are non-reformist reforms. Those are reforms that take us along the path towards police abolition. 
I'm sorry if I misspoke and said that, no. that Minneapolis yeah. uh, wants to disarm rather than defund. It's defund, right? It, I think it's that, defund. That's what I've read. And, at and least. In, here in Bloomington, my hometown, people are calling um, on the police force to disarm. Both of those things are fantastic, and neither one of them is um, succumbing to the temptation to think of police as civilian, right? Like the call to demilitarize, which reinforces the idea that police are civilian. To disarm the police is not a call to demilitarize. It is just a call to get them to stop using these really lethal weapons. Of course, it wouldn't have helped George Floyd, but it would have helped a lot of other people, and it it would be a step in absolutely the right direction. So I hope that folks, as they're thinking about these things, will allow themselves to think about the distinction between reformist reforms, which grow the system, and real reforms, which move us towards a different kind of system altogether. And no, I would also say to folks who are feeling despair that a lot of people aren't involved in changing the police directly, but they're doing other things that are building the world that we want, the world we want to see. People who are, you know, carefully and beautifully raising their and other people's children, who are creating gardens and sharing food, who are setting up systems where neighbors can look out for each other when their kids are teenagers and do age-appropriate um, kind of obnoxious things, you know, right. um, or, you know, ways that we can set systems up for each other, ways when we harm each other, that we can bring each other to account and make amends and help make things right in ways that don't involve the police and that don't rely on state violence for their ultimate underpinning. I think those people who are doing that, you are really doing the work of building a better world. And whether or not you are involved also in protesting or, um, you know, we need, we need everybody doing all of those kinds of work. We have, we have room for people who are now protesting, including rioting and looting and attacking the police. We need those people for the kind of dramatic impact and the expressions of rage that fuel the energy of other people who are doing other kinds of building. You can't have only one piece of that puzzle. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful, um, to, to all the folks who are doing all the different kinds of work right now that is not leading towards banal reform that will take us back into the system. People who are doing all the building and all the destroying that we need alongside each other in order to move towards uh, a really different world. Okay, I think that that's a, a good place uh, to wind up our conversation on this message of hope. Um, I'm sorry thank that you I so got much. so far away from the book. You know, the book came out two oh. years ago, and no, um, I understand. I do yeah. think that its 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 core insights are still useful to folks, but frankly, what's going on now in the streets is just more useful. <laughs> right. As long but, as you can think about. But I do it, think that really it's important way. to think about things like the state market relationship and uh, the yes. role that police play in in uh, reproducing racialized capitalism uh, to understand the longer term trajectory that we need to take to not just implement these piecemeal reforms, but to have much deeper social changes to reduce uh, um, the the role of violence in our society and sanction sanction violence in particular. So for that, I, I think you, that Beth. Violence Work is a terrific book, and uh, I really learned a lot from it. So thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate your um, your interest and your particular contribution to this this great labor, this great collective task, which is before us. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Take care.